0: We need to un-silo our organization. Silos are hurting our fundraising. We must break down the silos. Chances are, if you work in the nonprofit world, you've heard words just like these over the last couple of years, and the industry is starting to come around to the idea that organizational and information silos, they do hurt the donor experience because they, they deprive donors of the seamless cross-channel experience that they've come to know and expect from the commercial world. But Many organizations still fall short on implementation, and there's a very good reason for that. There just isn't a playbook for taking these buzzwords and buzz phrases and turning them into action. Well, we're going to try to write that playbook today, or at least contribute to it, by giving you four tips to unsilo your organization. It's time to break down the walls and unsilo your mind. This is the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. Let's get started. And welcome and welcome back to the DNP Nation. I'm your host, Dan Sonners. It is great to be speaking with you again. It's been too long since I've been able to put out one of these... uh full-length episodes. I don't need to tell you if you're listening to this that it is a busy time in the nonprofit space, and uh, for many of us, it's going to get even busier as we approach 2020, but it is a glorious time of year here in the Northeast. It's starting to feel like fall, football season's in full swing, and uh, we're right in the midst of the baseball playoffs. In fact, my Yankees will be kicking off Game 1 shortly against the Houston Astros, chasing their 28th World Championship. We'll see how that goes and plays out, but should be a great series either way. But regardless, it's been a while, but I have to say that I've really – I've really been encouraged and appreciated all the feedback that I've received from people at shows, uh, some people which I've never met in person before who've listened, and um, it's really validated a lot of the reasons why I started this project to begin with, in the idea that there is a need for innovation in the nonprofit space and talking about ideas that may be pre-case study but still have very big implications for our industry and all the great organizations that we work with and and all the great work that they do. And um, it's really kind of reiterated to me that there is a big part of the industry that is hungry for that conversation about innovation. So we're certainly going to keep going with the conversation here at Dynamic Nonprofits, and I'm going to uh, try my best to get these full-length episodes out um, as often as possible so we can continue starting these conversations. And one of the things that I've been really proud of with this project is that we've taken some industry buzzwords and we've deconstructed them and really broke them down step by step and made them act. We did that with content marketing, we did that with multi-channel fundraising, and most recently we did our um, our our episode on uh, the six principles for authentic fundraising, and we're going to do that again today, and, and I really think that today's episode could be a landmark one for this podcast, but it really is an important one for the industry as a whole because we're going to deconstruct and break down exactly how to un-silo your organization. And before we get started, I do need to point out that... Um I'm just one person with one set of opinions. There is no end all be all in this industry uh, regardless of how long someone has been in it. Um you know the, this podcast is, is an example of how uh, opinions and perspectives have become democratized because of the internet and because of podcasts. So um always keep that in mind. It's just one perspective. Um and and I do recognize that some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight may not be practical and may not apply to every organization out there. However, I do think that these four steps are going to have some foundational principles which will be able to help you get the conversation started if your goal is to unsilo and integrate your organization. So uh, I do think it's an important listen if this is something that's a priority of yours that you're trying to communicate to your clients or uh, inside um, your own walls if you work at a nonprofit organization. And I'm really excited to share these ideas with you. So let's get it started with uh, the first step. All right, so the first step to unsilo your organization uh, sounds simple, but there's a lot to unpack. And it's what I call hold a monthly all-hands-on-deck meeting. And what I mean by that is all the stakeholders for your fundraising operation should all meet either in the same room or be on a a joint call together, somewhere where they have access to listen to each other and to talk to each other and all have access to the same information. And um, this means if you have a direct mail Uh, fundraising operation and uh, an email one or social media, Um, everybody, telemarketing, every channel should be involved in this. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Nobody wants to add another meeting to their already packed calendar and sometimes meetings are painful. Well, there's a way around that too. And it really needs to come from the top down. And it needs to be established that this is not a cya meeting so the idea is not to come and talk about all the great things that you've been doing the number of donors that you've acquired the number of names that you've acquired it needs to be established from the onset that the objective of this meeting is to share information that will be helpful to other people and what that does is it uh, creates from the onset an unselfish environment that uh, this is not about self-promotion, and it starts to lay the groundwork for collaboration that ultimately is the product of unsiloing your organization. So this is an example of a step where the execution is much more important than the physical act of just having the meeting. Because if you don't have that um, unselfish mindset going in, if you don't make it clear that this is about helping other people and giving them access to information, um, it can really go off the rails pretty quickly and, and possibly even become quite painful if people don't understand what the real purpose of this is. And by the way, I, I I like to expand beyond just your development um fundraising channels. For instance, a lot of organizations have moved their social media channels over into the communications department. That could be for budgetary reasons, something we're gonna talk about um in step two. But um it could be because those channels may not bring in a lot of donors directly so they're viewed more as an engagement tool so they're not under the umbrella umbrella of development but the fact is is that what donors and supporters are talking about and interacting with on social media that can give major ideas and and test concepts to your uh, direct mail team and to your email team about things that they should be fundraising off of if there's something that's inspiring your supporters to action on social media. Likewise, if something is working for fundraising, um, that could give your social media team ideas for things that they should be pushing on their page. And in general, that's a good thing to do because... This way, uh, donors, if they're on follow your organization on social media, they can be uh, you can be reinforcing the themes that you're going to be talking about in your fundraising appeals, which gives that that um that integrated experience that we're talking about that donors are going to be familiar with from the commercial world where they're hearing about the same themes on each channel. So that in itself, even just across departments like that between communications and development, can be extremely valuable. And of course, development. Um, in between those channels themselves, email, what's working on email can give ideas for direct mail and vice versa. Um, same thing with telemarketing as well. A lot of times we we frequently see that these issues work across multiple channels because a lot of the donors are similar and um, sometimes they ping between multiple channels or you just happen to catch them in a certain place. So, um, you know what, sometimes there's going to be a unique issue that works well in a given channel but oftentimes there's a lot of crossover there and what you're doing in this meeting is you're improving the information flow throughout the organization you're creating a culture of cooperation and you're hopefully saving your team's uh time and cost involved in testing because you're helping them get test ideas that are already been proven out on another channel and i wouldn't even necessarily limit this meeting to uh, just fundraising and communications. Um, So when I'm talking about stakeholders involved in fundraising, I'm talking about reps from your programmatic department as well. Um, Now, we don't necessarily think about um, our programmatic activity on the ground as fundraising. But in reality, what you're doing on the ground, the actual uh, fulfillment of your mission, that's work product that you should be referencing in your fundraising materials. And a lot of times that information doesn't get through to organizations because these departments either never cross paths or they're never in the same room together talking. So just hearing on a monthly basis what your organization is doing on the ground and um, everything involved in that, that can inspire um, your fundraising team for things that they should be talking about in their fundraising appeals. Um, Likewise, If there's a particular issue that happens to work really well for fundraising, so if you're an organization that's multifaceted, that uh, works in a lot of different areas, and there's one in particular that donors respond to more than others, that's really good information on the programmatic level as well, because what can happen is your, your programmatic team can then take that information and try to create initiatives around that and then recycle that as work product to your fundraising team, so giving them things that they can promote to donors that have already been proven out that donors already care about. So a lot of good can come by just getting everybody in the same room, talking about information um, that's helpful to other people, and um, by creating this culture of cooperation and, and teamwork and moving away from this idea of siloed departments where everybody is competing with each other or just walled off with each other, where they feel like something that's going on in another department doesn't really impact them. And and most importantly, what this does is it helps lay the groundwork for what's called um, an everyone is a fundraiser mentality. Um, That's uh, widely spread. There's a lot of books dedicated to the topic. I'm not exactly sure who coined it, but it's um, a very, uh, very effective phrase uh, because it gets everybody thinking about Uh, Everything that they do within an organization is tied into fundraising one way or another. And I also, as an extension of that, I like to say that everyone is a fundraiser, but everything is fundraising. So everything that your organization is doing, and that's where when you start getting the programmatic team to think about how the things that they're doing on the ground can actually be utilized for fundraising – it gets everybody on the same page and gets them to focus on a united goal and um, sends the message that this is a, we have a culture of teamwork here where everybody is working together towards a shared mission. All right, so we've made it to our second tip for siloing your organization. And tip number two is umbrella budgeting. And what umbrella budgeting means at a very high level is on an annual basis, an organization sets a goal for the amount of revenue that they want to acquire or the amount of donors that they want to bring in. And they allow their developmental personnel to determine the best way of getting there. Now, this works on a couple levels, Um, mainly because it allows the fundraisers to be fundraisers, the people that are um, closest to the actual transaction point to determine the best way to allocate funds in real time. So let's say you have uh, an emergency relief fundraiser um, that you want to put money into. You don't necessarily need to worry about using up your digital budget for the year. You can reallocate funds if it's more cost-effective to move money from direct mail into an emergency relief digital campaign. Um, Likewise, if you're struggling online, um, say, because of the the noise, because of the political climate now and into 2020, organizations can move money back into more evergreen direct mail packages if the online climate just is not... um, is not prosperous at the moment. So it allows you to make those decisions in real time instead of setting um, uh, exact goals for each channel at the top of the year. And as we know, the fundraising climate tends to change very quickly. So having that real-time flexibility is advantageous. The other thing that this allows you to do is it allows you to test um, one channel helping another without worrying about um, using up individual channel budgets. So, uh, for example, if you want to test sending um, Facebook ads to a direct mail list or to your direct mail donor file before the mail piece arrives, um, a lot of reasons why there's um, reluctance to do that or some inertia is because you might be in a situation where you could be spending $5,000 on Facebook ads and not bringing back any money from that, which, could, uh, which would be a hit for your social media budget. But if you're using that $5,000 and you're producing a 20% lift for your direct mail, you can justify it that way. So it just gives more flexibility to kind of mix and match the channels as it makes sense based on the individual campaigns. And the reason why that there is generally pushback to this approach, um, because I've asked a lot of people that work at organizations, why is this something that's not done more? Uh, it usually comes back to control. Boards set an annual budget and they want to know how many donors each channel is going to bring in in a given year and how much revenue. And um, obviously there's there's a lot of control and predictability associated with that. But as we just talked about, especially in this current fundraising climate where things are so volatile and changing so quickly and there's so many different channels, Is it really possible to predict a year ahead of time how many donors you're going to bring in from a given channel? For instance, who really knows when voice is going to take off? And if your organization tests into um, a direct mail appeal for um, doing direct-to-voice or to -to direct-to-Alexa donations, and that takes off, you know, you might— might make sense to pull money from another budget to put into that. So this also gives you the opportunity to test into emerging mediums and have the resources to feed them, if it makes sense based on the performance. Now, how I get around the control aspect of all this, because I I understand that this is not something that's going to be right for every every organization. It's not a structure that is going to work with every board dynamic. Although I think that if you have board members that do come from the commercial world, uh, they should be fairly familiar with this concept because this is something that the, the commercial landscape has adapted to because um, really just out of necessity and um, out of necessity because of the, the consumer's expectation about having a global experience. But how I pitch this is um, basically as a sports franchise model. So in this sports franchise model, your board of directors effectively acts as the owners of your organization or the owners of your sports team. And um, this doesn't lessen their importance, but effectively what it does is the board is allocating decision-making ability to the people who ultimately have to answer to the board. And the board is still very important in the sense that They set the overall budget for the organization. They determine how much money you're willing to spend or invest in a given year. And um, they may put overarching goals in place. Again, you can have total numbers of donors that you want to acquire or total revenue that you hope to acquire. But the board's function then is to, uh, to hire executive leadership and put them in place and allow them to chart a course to reach those goals. And your executive leadership basically acts as the general manager of your team. So what that means is the general manager takes the overall vision and the overall budget of the owners, which is the board, and they chart a course including strategy and personnel below them to reach those, go- to reach those goals. So basically, your board picks the destination and your executive director and your executive leadership draws the map of how they want to get to that destination. So again, we're not talking about taking power away from anybody. We're just moving decision-making ability around, but everybody still has the same overarching responsibilities. And the coaches in the sports franchise model are your departmental leadership. So think your director of development, your head of marketing, the people who are responsible for the individual components that make up your organization and they basically get to write the plays and determine what tools and channels to use to get the organization to their ultimate donor goals. And of course, the players, they are their, your mid and your entry level staff, they're responsible for executing the strategy, although they certainly could have a role in uh, coming up with messaging and giving input uh, to the coaches or your de- departmental leadership about what kind of channels to test and things like that. So everybody has a clearly defined role in this model, and nobody is less important or has less power in this model. It's just that the decision-making ability is allocated down the chain to the people who are in a position on the ground level to ultimately see the results of those decisions, whether it's a message test or a channel test, and be able to make decisions and respond to them quickly without having to go... Up the ladder to get approval to make decisions, because while this does um, while this does uh, prevent um, higher level employees or the board from micromanaging in real time, it does allow the organization to be more nimble and respond to fundraising needs as conditions change on the ground and um, or in the marketplace and I do believe that fundraising operations are most successful when the people who are closest to the fundraising have the ability to make decisions in real time and um, respond to changing conditions. And, And the ultimate question with this is, well, what happens if it doesn't work out? And there, it's the reality of any other business that sometimes um, a vision or a strategy does not work out and sometimes a change in personnel is is needed. But that's why in this model your board is not any less important, they're no, just not involved in day-to-day decision making um, when it comes to fundraising and they are giving some trust and uh, responsibility to all the layers of the organization below them, but ultimately they are the owners and they are the ultimate decision makers. And if things don't work out in this model, they're the ones that then would have to uh, make, decide to make a change and bring in some new personnel and try try a, uh, a different uh, change in direction. All right, so we've made it to our third tip on how to unsilo your organization. And on the third tip, we're gonna take a bit of a detour because the first two were really about improving the information flow within your organization and uh making your organization more nimble and able to be responsive without having to go too far up the uh internal ladder to make decisions as far as fundraising and uh and and budget allocation but tip number 3 we're really going to focus on the donor experience because that's a big part of unsiloing all as well and that's really the ultimate goal in improving your internal communications is to be able to improve the overall donor experience. And in order to do this, the third tip I call is um, conduct a cross-channel audit. Now, what I mean by that is as best as possible, based on the information you have on hand, try to replicate the donor journey. Now understand when I talk about the donor journey, um, the, the modern consumer experience is that even though Uh, generally a very small percentage of donors, maybe 10% or less, will actually make donations on multiple channels. The amount of touch points that donors experience um, before they actually make a donation frequently is uh, multiple channels. In fact, I have a friend of mine who um, works in the uh, financial services world, and he told me that their internal uh, studies had shown that the average consumer has 12 touch points. Now that could be digital, or direct mail, TV, could be anything before they ultimately make a conversion. So you can imagine that the process of getting familiar with a nonprofit organization and uh, coming around to understand the value proposition, decide to make a donation, it's probably very similar. And there's probably a lot of touch points that just normally are not accounted for. And um, if you're fortunate enough to have a CRM database that can catalog a lot of this and you know that people are seeing social media ads and display ads Um, that certainly is a great reference point for determining what are your most common donor journeys another way to do this is through donor surveys now they may not be as accurate as a crm solution because people can't necessarily recall every display ad or social media ad um, that they saw or television ad if if you're a uh, organization is doing uh, TV ads or DRTV um, but that could be helpful as well just to understand how donors are coming in the door and what they're seeing before they make that decision to come in the door but based on the information you have information you can obtain from donors try to map out some plausible uh, cross channel experiences Now, here's some examples um, let's say somebody uh, gets a piece in the mail and goes to your website now this is a very um, A very common thing, you know, think about your own consumer behaviors when you get a mail piece. You know, usually one of the first things you do is you go to the website or you Google it and um, just try to replicate that experience of getting a mail piece and going to the website and is the information similar are the talking points similar is the value proposition similar and it's not always going to be identical because a lot of organizations have multiple direct mail campaigns and they can't necessarily sync up their websites or their landing or their home pages with all of them but you can still have similar uh, reinforcements of value propositions on your general donation page, for example, um, mentioning the various missions that are featured in your direct mail. Just is it a relatively consistent experience and what are you doing on uh, your website and on your donation page to reinforce those value propositions and the call to action uh, to try to create that consistent experience? I mean, one thing, one really low-hanging fruit is what does your logo look like? Um, how often do you see where the logo is different on the mail piece versus on the website? And we know that logo consistency is important just for kind of reinforcing the idea that this is the same campaign. Um, Likewise, as I just mentioned, a lot of donors do go on to, uh, they do Google the name of the organization and then um, through Google search, they'll find the website. So replicate that experience of getting a mail piece and then um, Googling it and going to a website. Um, This is something I talked about actually last year at uh, Data Strategy Forum in Washington, is the idea of um, usually AdWord campaigns are not connected to other channels. And they really should be, because if you think about it, if somebody is Googling your organization based on receiving a mail piece, um, what does that Google advertisement look like that appears at the top of the page is there something connected to the mail pieces that are out there or reinforcing similar themes? Or is it basically just a, a call to action to donate? Is it, um, what does it look like for somebody that's still in the process of learning about your organization? And, and just what kind of consistency is there? Um, social media, same thing. If you're reading social media content and then you get a piece in the mail, um, now you're never going to be able to replicate 100% a mail piece through social media, but you can still touch on those themes, especially if you have a very large social media following, you can make sure that you're constantly hitting on your direct mail appeal themes so that when people get the mail pieces, they've already been exposed to that work in the organization and um, the value proposition of it. Um, Email to a mail piece if People are getting email appeals and then a mail piece comes in the mail. This is especially controllable for house files when you know when your, um, your existing donors are going to be getting emails and getting direct mail appeals. Do they reinforce each other? Um, if you do Facebook live streams and then an email goes out, is there any consistency there? And just try to see, is it a do- disjointed experience? Is it something that's going to be confusing or is there some degree of continuity where if a if a donor goes from one channel to another that they will at least be getting reinforcement of similar themes and try as best as you can to re- recreate the donor experience and this is where entry level staff and interns are really helpful because you can ask them to go through the process of being a donor and just give them the space and the flexibility to give you honest feedback and If it does seem disjointed, that's an opportunity to try to leverage those themes and um, make sure that they do appear on multiple channels so that donors that ping from one channel to another are getting a consistent experience. Um, Another really important one is if you do live events and then uh, you send a mail piece after the fact, do those mail pieces touch on the topic at the live event. Um, that is a really uh, powerful lead generation technique if you do live events and is there continuity there. So um, just really trying to make sure that you understand as best as possible the donor journey that your donors are experiencing and how much um, how much uh, friction is there in that process where there could be confusion and uh what opportunities can you do can you take advantage of to reinforce consistent messaging across your various channels so that donors are getting a relatively ex- uh consistent experience because this is super important because if you look at the experience that you get from your um commercial mailers whose um, whose stores you may follow on Facebook or whose email coupons you may get. It is a very consistent experience, very consistent offers, and uh, donors are going to increasingly expect that and require that in order to follow the process and make a donation. And now we've reached our fourth and final tip for how to unsilo your organization, and it is creating a culture of collaboration. Now you may be saying... Wait, we already started having our monthly all-hands-on-deck meeting. Isn't that creating a culture collaboration? Well, yes and no. That is a step in a, along the process. But, in fact, chances are if you're not already in an unsiloed culture, it is an ongoing process. And it is... Um, incremental in nature and it really requires a top-down mandate throughout the organization that collaboration is not just something we talk about it's something that's um, expected and it's something that you're actively expected to work on so within the context of those monthly meetings uh, one thing I suggest is to state a goal of asking your team to brainstorm cross-collaboration opportunities. So this can be something as simple as if you have a direct mail appeal schedule to go out, whether it be prospect or house file, simply adding an email message to go out before or after. Uh, you could do the same thing with text messaging. You could have uh, a text message go out before and afterwards to ask somebody if they receive the mail piece. and if they they had any questions. Um, if you have a major campaign, say end of year or Giving Tuesday, or if you have a donor appreciation day or a special day set up within your organization to make a major fundraising push, that could be an opportunity to incorporate lots of channels where maybe you have email, text message, social media, direct mail, programmatic display. It really is a question of Is this a campaign that's going to a targeted, controllable audience like direct mail or an email blast? Or is it something that's intended for a mass audience? So if it is end of year or Giving Tuesday and you're running things like DRTV... um maybe programmatic display is appropriate for that kind of campaign and it is possible to combine six or seven channels and making sure that they all have coordinated messaging and they're all reinforcing each other but not every channel is going to be right for every campaign and that's a critical part of this process as well as figuring out what makes sense what's logical based on the goals of the campaign and the audience. But it's really important to uh, make your team understand that this is something that's expected. This is a goal coming out of uh, unsiloing your organization and these monthly meetings. Because the fact is, is that this is a very insular industry. And unless digital and direct mail teams and teams from other channels are, are kind of forced to collaboration, I guess you could kind of uh, forced to collaborate. I guess you can kind of call this forced collaboration. Um, history suggests that they won't do it because we are insular by nature. Uh, there's a lot of human nature that goes into that, but also just kind of a culture within the industry and organizations that it's all about. Um, fighting for donors to go into your channel and justifying your budget and trying to get uh, as many donors attributed to your channel as possible and it just has to be really clear from the top down that this is no longer about attribution we're concerned about how do we work together to bring in as many donors as possible to the organization and a stated collaboration goal coming out of your monthly meeting is a great way to send that message. And there you have it. Those are our four tips for unsiloing your organization. And a couple things to to bookmark um, the tips. I think this is really important to address up front and be honest and transparent about, you know, when you start talking about um, these newer concepts, one of the first questions that you typically get from uh, people in organizations is, are there any published case studies? Now, there are certainly more organizations that are talking about an unsiloed approach. And I've seen some wonderful case studies recently from uh, Greenpeace in the UK and Food for the Poor and Human Rights Coalition. And there are other organizations who are talking about integrating their fundraising approach. So this is definitely something that's receiving a lot of adaptation in the nonprofit profit space. Um, I would say more so amongst larger organizations where this is a systemic concern because they have so many channels of engagement and they might be doing a lot of things with mass media that they want to make sure that the targeted channels are connected with Um, but i'm not aware of any firm case studies that show the financial benefit you know the rationale is usually that as i said earlier that this is something that consumers expect from their commercial experience and it's just an evolution of uh consumer behavior um but i haven't seen any um ab tests demonstrating the 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 financial benefit of all this so what i would suggest is that if you're involved with an organization or you work at an organization and this is something you want to advocate for, advocate for um i would suggest treating the unsiloing process and it is a process it's definitely not an overnight one I would treat it as a test in itself, right? We're marketers, we want to experiment and we want to test by nature. And I would treat it as a six to 12 month test, ideally 12 months to see how all these things play out. And bookmark some key metrics that you can quantify at the end of that period. So some things you could look at, obviously, revenue, number of donors acquired, but also things like multi-channel donors. Are you increasing your multi-channel donors through a more uh, coordinated approach? Lifetime value, um, the quality of your social media interactions. So um, what kind of conversations are you having on social media? Are they more substantive? Substantive than they were um, previously. The number of followers, donor feedback. This is where donor surveys are incredibly helpful. Asking donors about their donor journey and the engagement channels and the consistency of the experience. That's something which can be really powerful. But also one other thing that I think is equally important in this and uh, gets lost in the mix is your internal culture. Because what happens when you go to an unsiloed structure is you go from an organization with a lot of different internal departments where everybody's concerned about meeting their own internal departmental budgets and metrics to a culture of teamwork where everybody is united around a common goal and a common mission of trying to Um, of trying to bring in as many donors as possible in as cost effective a manner as possible to um, enable your organization to do as much good as possible. And that in itself could be a really powerful thing and have a have a strong impact on employee morale and things like that. And of course, at the end of the day, the the key metrics, the revenue metrics, the number of donors, multi-channel engagement, all of that is really important. And you're probably going to need that to justify your approach to the board. But don't underestimate the impact on your internal culture, because the uh, revenue metrics and the donor metrics aside, if this teamwork approach makes your organization a better place to work, and allows you to attract and retain uh, solid employees, that in itself could be worth the investment in unsiloing your organization. And now we've come to my favorite part of the show, and hopefully it's one of your favorite parts as well. It's work-life balance, where I give you a work tip, and then a life tip, and we're going to start tonight with the work tip, and we're going to talk a little politics. Now, don't change the channel because we're not really going to talk about politics, but we are going to talk about money in politics because it has major implications for the nonprofit world. Um, I just want to read some fundraising uh, numbers to you. These are from the third quarter FEC reports from the Democratic field, and see if these resonate with you. Um, Andrew Yang, raised 9.9 million dollars off of 300,000 donors. Kamala Senator Kamala Harris raised 11.7 million. Um Joe Bi- uh former Vice President Joe Biden raised 15.7 million. Um I don't need to tell you that's not a great number for uh the former Vice President and you'll see why in a in a minute. Um Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, he raised $19.1 million. Um, Senator Elizabeth Warren raised $24.6 million. That's off of 943,000 donations. And um, topping the field, Senator Bernie Sanders raised $25.3 million. That's off of a staggering 1.4 million donors. I don't care who you are or what you believe those are some impressive totals but just so you know this is not a partisan issue the trump campaign combined with their joint fundraising committee with the rnc raised 125 million dollars that means that the trump campaign has raised 300 million dollars to date and that is more than double what president obama's campaign had at this point during the uh, 2012 election cycle, when he was running for re-election. So we are in uncharted waters, uh, and that is probably the understatement of the uh, the century. Now, how does this apply to the fundraising world? It applies on multiple levels. Um, Clearly, we have people that don't normally donate to political candidates, low-dollar donors who are engaged at an unprecedented level. Um, in some cases in the Democratic field, I don't think we've seen any data from Act Blue on this, but I wouldn't be shocked. I'm sure there's a significant number of people that um, that are donating to multiple Democratic candidates, so that complicates the issue even further. Um, I would venture to say that um, it, it's probably more significant than you would think because uh, the DNC has kind of gamed out the system where there's an incentive to get a certain number of donors to qualify for these debates that's why you see those facebook ads or candidates are begging for a dollar donations it's all about getting the requisite number of donors Uh, so i'm sure there is um multi multi-donors across the field Um, and besides the financial aspect obviously people are donating money who uh, that means they have less money to donate to charitable causes Um, There's also the attention aspect and the climate of the 2020 election in general. Um, Polls show that um, donor enthusiasm on both sides is at an unprecedented level for this point in the cycle. So just something to keep in mind because there's so much discussion in the industry about uh, donor retention, and, and this is actually something that I've been talking about going back to last year in the 2018 cycle, and the unprecedented amount of grassroots fundraising that took place during that cycle. And I'm really curious: Are there any organizations out there who are asking of their donors about their political activity, whether that's having an impact on their um, on their renewal uh, re- renewal rates and renewal levels? Are there any companies out there that are measuring this because? There are some landmark studies that show that historically people who donate to political candidates actually donate more uh, compared to the average donor, Um, but that's based on the old Uh, framework where historically donating to political candidates was something that older and wealthier donors do Um, now with all these grassroots with the grassroots fundraising aspect and even going back to the 2016 campaign, how the Sanders campaign and Ted Cruz's campaign, they really kind of revolutionized presidential fundraising and they made it more about growing big donor files of relatively small donors that you can go to repeatedly. And you really have to wonder what kind of impact is it having that people who previously were not donating to political campaigns who uh, may typically give at the fifteen or twenty or twenty five dollar uh, giving level are now supporting presidential candidates and um, in, in such large numbers as well and and how much money is that pulling out of the charitable system because maybe donors are looking at it and thinking that right now given the climate given the timing that the um candidates of their choice are they perceive them to be the causes that are have the most immediate need and uh, what kind of impact is that having on the overall metrics of uh, of giving Um, i have suggested that organizations if you have an inkling that this might be having an impact to test inserting some language into your mail pieces or to your email appeal, uh, A-B test it, and address the fact that a lot of donors may feel very passionate right now because of the climate, uh, the political climate, and they may be giving to candidates that they support, but that your organization is there regardless of which way the political winds blow and you are seeing some donors who are cutting back because of the political season and um, that the help of your donors is needed now more than ever and testing that and addressing this friction of the election season head on and seeing if that has any impact because if Um, The political climate, this unprecedented uh, splurge of grassroots giving, if this is having an impact on the charitable space, um, it's only going to get worse as we go into 2020 and get closer to the election. So I think now is the time to uh, test that kind of language and be able to position yourself properly for 2020 when it's going to be a very noisy marketplace, to say the least. And for our life tip, I'm going to recommend The Office. Now, I know I'm a little bit late to the party on this one, as in a lot late, but um, I don't ask me why I did not watch The Office in its first run when it was on television. Um, I just never got to it, but I had enough friends and family who told me that I needed to give it a shot on Netflix. So I started watching it. And six months later, I binged through the entire series, it kind of became my nighttime show of choice to kind of just unwind after the day. And I have to say, I think it's, um, if it's not my favorite comedy of all time, it's definitely in the top two or three. And that's saying a lot since it's ranking up there with uh, the Simpsons and Seinfeld. But it really just is an incredible show. Besides being outrageously funny, I think what makes The Office such a great show is that it has a lot of heart to it. Um, It really gets you to care about the the characters and emotionally invest in their storylines. And uh, of course, there's the the truth that with any workplace comedy that um, there's always some subtle truths in there about workplace environments that we can all relate to. And that makes it... um, that makes it even more enjoyable to watch. But uh, I can't recommend it enough. If you have Netflix and you're looking for something to binge on to unwind from a long day after you're done uh, doing your fundraising strategy and your list plans, uh, check out The Office. I promise you won't regret it. And that's a wrap. We've made it to the conclusion of our episode about four tips to unsilo your organization. And if you've made it this far, I'm guessing that you've enjoyed the episode and you've received some value from it. And if you have, if I could ask a favor, please go to uh, to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or the platform that you're listening to this on, and please rate and review the show. It helps us out a ton, and it helps um, spread our message and further advocate, advocate for uh, unsiloing the nonprofit industry, which is our mission here at the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. And those ratings and reviews, they really do help a lot. We've been appearing frequently in uh, nonprofit searches on Apple iTunes, which is great. And I've been noticing the download numbers going up. So um, help us reach some more people in the industry, rate and review the show. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. I am Dan Sonners. Just let me know that you Um, discovered me because of uh, the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. You can also email the show at dynamicnonprofits at gmail.com and we uh, I'd love to hear from you Uh, I'd love to continue some of these conversations offline and hear what you have to say about unsiloing your organization or unsiloing the industry as a whole and we have lots more coming down the pike Uh, more great episodes of course our DNP quick takes which have quickly turned into a favorite some more interviews coming down the pike as well lots more content we are just getting started in our mission to uh, uh, unsilo the fundraising industry and and advocate for a 360 degree approach to fundraising and we hope you'll join us but for now i am dan sonner saying good night from new jersey home of the most diners in america that's right we have over 500 diners in new jersey and if you visit make sure to check out the or make sure to check out the disco fries at six brothers diner you won't regret it